hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Wednesday, March 29th, we are studying John chapter 17, verses 11 to 19. In today's text, Jesus prays for his disciples. As he is about to return to the Father and his disciples remain in the world, Jesus asks the Father to keep them from the evil one. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, the Reverend Dr. Adam Philippek. Pastor Philippek serves at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Churches, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Philippek, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you, Pastor Apple. Good to be with you, and greetings as always to our listeners in the name of our crucified, risen, reigning Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was, who is, and who is to come. Pastor Philippek, we are in the middle of a prayer from our Lord Jesus Christ. We look at the first part yesterday, and there's more coming afterwards. What should we know about the context of this prayer that'll help us with the verses we've got today? I think the biggest thing to keep in mind, and we'll keep this short, sweet, and to the point, is that Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples in the night in which he was betrayed. They're about to head out to the Mount of Olives, and we'll get into this a little bit more today. Jesus knows what he is going to face over the next couple of days and what the disciples will see and face themselves. All right, so we are in the upper room with Jesus. Again, we heard him pray yesterday. He's continuing that prayer today. We pick up with our text in John 17, verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in, your, in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. That is our text for today. That's John 17, verses 11 to 19. So again, we're picking up right in the middle of Jesus' prayer here, Pastor Philip Peck, and the, there's a petition, especially there in verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name. What is Jesus asking there? Yeah, this is a very important thing. Last time I was on Chopper, Sharper Iron, we talked about this cosmic battle um, between Satan and Jesus, and that, that cosmic battle really continues in this what is known as the high priestly, this intercessory prayer. God interceding on behalf of the disciples and then those who would believe through him. And his intercession here is, is to, for what they are about to see over the, over the course of the next few days, as we talked about just briefly in the intro, they're going to see the betrayal. They're going to see the arrest. They're going to see the denial. They're going to see the chief priests. They're going to see Judas. They're going to see 
um, Peter's denial of that. They're going to see the thorns and the nails and the cross. And Jesus knows that they are going to come face to face with terrible, horrible amounts of evil. And more than that, the one behind all of the evil, the one whom we pray in the Lord's Prayer in the original text, not deliver us from evil, but deliver us from the evil one. So the evil one, Satan, lurking in the background there in the night in which Jesus is betrayed. We're going to talk about this, especially once we get to the Judas aspect. But you have this horrible evil that when you come face to face with that, when the disciples see that, it is going to shake their faith to the core. All that they thought they knew, all that they thought they they saw in the miracles of Jesus and everything that they had hoped that he would do is going to come to a screeching halt. And I know I'm just kind of borrowing this from a little of Luke's gospel here, so much so that even on Easter morning, there's going to be a Cleopas and the other disciple. They're walking along the road, and the, the, the tenor is, is much of these in the upper room. We had hoped. I mean, this is going to shatter what they thought. And so the, the problem of evil comes full face in, in view here for the disciples when the devil, strikes the shepherd, and this is his Ephaniah 3 prophecy, when he strikes the shepherd, then the sheep themselves will scatter. Mark 4 lays heavily on this, talking about that Zephaniah prophesying, that that suffering servant uh, who is stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God, and we esteemed him not. And this is this aspect then, too, of seeing this evil, seeing the shepherd struck, uh, this picks up on on the end of John 16, going into this. In this world, you will have trouble. Trouble is the norm. Trouble is what's going to be expected as you live your life in this world. You can expect evil. And, and that's what the disciples face. They face this evil in horrible amounts of, of um, <laughs> in spades. Let me just say it like that, in spades, rather, over the next several hours. Uh, in the next several days. And I'm going to pause there and give you a chance to respond, Pastor Apple. Um, but I think we we can we can sympathize. We can empathize. We see evil as well, and it shakes us to the core. More on that, uh, but let me just give you a chance to respond first. Well, that, that's where I want you to go next, is, is talk more about this problem of evil. Why Why is it a problem? How do we face it? How does Jesus' prayer then strengthen us when we face that problem of evil? Sure. And so this, I think, is one of the biggest faith-destroying things, right? And and Epicurus was the three points there. If, you know, God is good and God is loving, why does evil exist? And he held that you cannot hold two of those axioms, all three intention, you can only hold two of them, right? If, if God is is uh, good, then then why does evil exist? Clearly because God's not good. And I mean, there's this whole thing, theologians have written all kinds of things on this, but I think I think we ask the same questions. I mean, to, to put it more poignantly and less academically than Epicurious, I mean, this is the, this is the cry of the people throughout the Old Testament in the midst of their suffering for sin. They cry out to God. I mean, one of the most poignant things I can think of in the Old Testament is when the people of God are suffering in captivity. Isaiah talks about how there's this coming one and how he's going to come. You know, 70 years of captivity and Isaiah's words ring in their ears. Sing for joy. Shout, exult the earth and isaiah's words are something that amounts to to this yeah right buddy what do i have to sing about they're actually more poignant zion says the lord has forsaken me my lord has forgotten about me and 
that is the temptation. You know, you see all kinds of things on the 10 o'clock news, the shootings, the, the bombings, the, the wars, the airplanes flown in the building. I mean, just think of the last 20 years of your life or even the last 10 years or five years, all kinds of suffering. People are crying. People are dying, even ones that I love. And the, the temptation of the devil is, look at this. I thought God loved you. I thought you were a Christian. Uh, God, either God doesn't love you or maybe he's not real. And I mean, and then this is the, it. Where, God, where are you in this? Have you forgotten me? Have you forsaken me? This is, this is so poignant and it is so um, faith destroying because there's really two answers of this. And one one is given by those who look at this and are so overwhelmed to the point of despair that they say, yeah, I, I guess God isn't real. I guess he doesn't exist. Uh, otherwise, there wouldn't be uh, suffering. And so the idea is somehow that in the midst of this, Christians don't have an answer to suffering, that this problem is so great um, that that there is no probable, plausible answer to it. And yet, as foreign or as as regular as this question is to the people of God, there is such an answer. I mean, Psalm seventy-seven is one of the most poignant, poignant examples of the answers that Scripture gives to the problem of evil. You got the psalmist crying out to God, "When I think of you, God, I moan. My bones are broken. My and he's just crying out to God. You know, where are you in this? You've let." all of this evil come upon me. And halfway through the psalm, he makes a turn. He does not despair. That's one road, to despair of God, to give up the faith and say, no, God is not real. But the psalmist doesn't do that. David doesn't do that in crying out in his own punishment, right? On his knees with the son of, uh, of Bathsheba when, when that child dies. I know that there's all kinds of this in scripture, but I love Psalm 77 because in the middle of the psalm, it says, what shall I... What shall I turn to? What shall I appeal to? And then the psalmist says, I will remember this. I will remember the works of the Lord. And so th this is the beautiful part of the problem of, of evil is, is that in the midst of this, we have a God who suffers for us and with us. Why does suffering exist in this world? That, that's not an interesting question to me, Pastor Apple. I kind of know the answer, right? We brought sin. We brought suffering. We brought death into this world through our disobedience. Really, in the problem of, of evil, the, the more question, the more profound question is, God, why would God have mercy on any of us? And yet he does. So much so we have a God who is not a God of the dead, but of, a, of the living. And so we have a God who enters into our suffering. And that's what you see here in, in the crucifixion. Yeah, you see the wages of sin is death, but you see the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, who answers that question, where, God, where are you in the midst of suffering? To the point that, you know, I can't tell you why you're going through this or that, uh, or why, you know, God allowed that to happen. But I can tell you this, you know, to echo the words of Psalm 77, Isaiah 49, in the midst of this, I can tell you that you have a God who has not forsaken you, who has not abandoned you, who is for you and not against you. And how do you know that? Because he hung upon that cross. He engraved your name on the palms of his hands. You want to know where God is in this? Then look to the cross. Look to the wounds of your Savior and there find that your name has been forever etched in his palms written in blood. That's how loved you are by God. For God so loved the world in the midst of suffering in this way that he gave his only son to be high and lifted up. And that son suffered all 
for you upon the cross. So you have a God who joins you in the midst of suffering, who will not leave you, who will not forsake you, who will sustain you with his holy word and his promise that in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the sound of the trumpet, he will raise you up in glory and you will be free. No more sin, no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more illness. I mean, that's what Paul rejoices at in, in 2 Corinthians when he says in the midst of his own suffering, um, when I am weak, then I am and strong. For Christ's sake, then I am content with meekness. He's not happy. He pleads to the Lord that, that it should leave him. But the Lord says to him, my grace is sufficient for you. So Paul looks back like Christians of old and like we today who in the midst of our own problems of evil can say, wait, wait a minute, Lord, you haven't forgotten about me. You haven't forsaken me. You have joined me in the flesh. You have undergone my suffering and my death for me, you continue to be with me in the midst of suffering through your word proclaimed, through baptism, through absolution, through my fellow neighbor who might sit with me at the hospital room and bed, through my, my, my children who might care for me in my hour of the death, or, or even through me who cares for someone. You're with me even in the midst of suffering, and you're going to raise me up in glory. That's the God I have, a God who loves me, a God who suffers for me and with me, a God who is present with me in word and sacrament and in the Christian community, and a God who will raise me up in glory. Then, okay, Lord, I'm not happy about this evil, but I can endure it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So, so suffering drives you to the suffering one. The world doesn't know what to do with suffering, but Christians do. We know that God is found in the midst of suffering. So thinking about the disciples then, I mean, Jesus is here praying for them as they are about to witness what is done to him in his crucifixion. And so he prays that the Father would keep them in his name through that, such that now that Jesus has gone through that suffering and crucifixion and has been raised, that very act then becomes the refuge for us disciples when we undergo suffering. Absolutely. And his prayer to keep them in his name is literally about falling away into unbelief and utter despair. Keeping them in the name is actually being connected, being reconciled to the Father, which we'll talk more about here in the unity aspect. But the devil's assaults of the problem of evil, don't, doesn't God love you? Why would he let you do all? Where is God in the midst of this? Your God isn't real. All of those attacks of the problem of evil that the devil would would um would throw at us you know to finish the the words of uh, psalm 49 or isaiah 49 can a mother forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb ridiculous analogy right a, a mother cannot forget her screaming hungry baby uh, and the isaiah says even these may forget i will never forget about you behold i've engraved you in the palms of your, of your hands so jesus prays for his disciples that they take refuge in this in this event of suffering and in this event of resurrection and the victory that Christ will will win for us and give to us in that cross and in the, in the empty tomb. And that's where we find our refuge as well. That's how we're kept in the name of uh, the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit on the cross. As Jesus continues that petition then, you know, keep them in your name, which you have given me, and you mentioned this, that they may be one even as we are one. We'll see this come up again in the next part of the prayer that we'll look at tomorrow. Uh, introduce that theme for us today. What is Jesus talking about, that they may be one even as we are one? I think there is the most immediate context of the disciples here, that they may be one even as we are one, and it has to do with being kept in the name. 
not falling away from the Holy Father. And this has the exact implications of why the word became flesh in John to begin with. And Jesus's expression of this aspect in John 14, 6, no one comes to the Father except through me. And this this aspect of in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart in verse 16. I have overcome that world. That aspect of we've been cut off from God, the Father, since the beginning, since the garden, since we stretched out our hand and ate from, ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Sin separates God from its people. It always has. In the garden, there at Sinai and the building of the golden calf, even in the temple, the, the curtain, right? In the tabernacle, the curtain, only the high priest can enter there. But Jesus tabernacles among us. The word becomes flesh in order that through the word sent in the power of the spirit, we might by the spirit through the son, be at long last reconciled to the Father, that God may not be separated from us, but that that, that dividing wall of hostility, that curtain, may be torn in two, and we might have access once again to the Father. So this prayer is about continuing in faith through the name given to them, the name placed upon them. I mean, this is oh, this is the aspect of the bread of life. This is the, the Nicodemus discourse, born from above of water and spirit. Um, Jesus is praying for them to be continually be reconciled and united to that Father and be of one spirit and one mind, as Philippians 2 um, talks about. So there's this unity and aspect there first and foremost, this general unity of being reconciled uh, to the Father. And, you know, we, we talk about this a very poignantly each and every week, this unity that Christians have. We say in the one holy, and then we sort of change the words in the hymnal to Christian and apostolic church. The words there are Catholic and apostolic church in the original text. And, I, you know, we change them so that we don't have the confusion there. Are we talking about, you know, Roman Catholic, that sort of thing? But the word there, uh, Catholic, is not about Rome. It's, you know, our, our hymnal talks about the church uh, universal, but I like to think about it more like this. It's the church throughout the ages. So this is what Adam, this is what Abraham, this is what Noah, this is what, you can go all the way through the patriarchs. David, you can go up into the apostles on the upper room. This is what Peter and Matthew and and even Paul beyond that, so on and so forth, on into our day. This is what it means to be Christian, that everyone who looks to the Son, to quote John chapter 5, everyone who believes in him has eternal life and God will raise them up in the last on the last day. So there's this general blanket of, of, uni, of unity, uh, this reconciliation with the Father through the Son by the Spirit, and obviously the Spirit through the Word proclaimed, which we're going to get to in, in just a little bit. So Christians have that unity. The disciples have that unity now, and the Father and Jesus is praying that they be kept in that unity, that they be kept in faith. I think this is an easy passage for us in that way. We can get the reconciliation aspect. We can get the um, being one body of which Christ is the head of that body. You know, the first Corinthians 12 language um, that we are all in the Christian church, a body, and we have many members. And so there is one spirit and all are baptized into that one body. There is neither, neither slave nor free. All are made to drink of that one spirit. That's the same reconciliation we're talking about here. 
in, in John, that Jesus is the head of the body and we are the body and together we are just that. Um, Christ and his church, one body with the father, you know, one spirit. We're all one in that aspect. But I think this prayer is very hard for us today too, Pastor Apple, in one very uh, big instance in that we don't see the unity. You know, we think somehow that this prayer has gone unanswered. We forget about the unity of reconciliation through the blood of Christ, high and lifted up upon the cross, and then again in the in the resurrection through the empty tomb, all of that given to us in, in word, in water, in bread and wine, the very body and blood of our Lord Jesus. We, we uh, forget about that because there's such a, an emphasis on different factions of Christianity, i.e. denominations of Christianity. And so we look at Christianity and we think somehow, oh, the, the body's divided. Um, it's so divided. It's so schism that this prayer goes unanswered. We would first be well to take note of this fact that the body is united in Christ, that everyone who believes in him has eternal life and he will raise us up in the last day. Now we can talk about those denominational divisions a little bit more when we talk about the word of truth and things like that. It is true that there are divisions within the body, um, but how are those divisions solved? How are those divisions dealt with? I mean, this is this is what Paul has to deal with in, in his letters to the Corinthians and Romans and all of these different things, is that it's by going back to that word of truth and saying, what mm -hmm. has the Lord given us? and repenting where we have erred, and being united to him who spoke the word made flesh, the true word of God to us. And we, we as, as factions of the body, this is an appeal to go, yes, go back to the word of Christ and what is the truth? What has he said? What is recorded? What is the words on the page? And anything that is, is contrary to that, we need to repent of and, and be united. But there's also this aspect of, of just general unity of belief in him. So I think both are here. I think the church is going to face these schisms we have since the beginning, since Adam stretched out his hand. You've had all of this, this happen. And I think there's a great day to look forward to when there will be no divisions. The Revelation 7, around the throne of the Lamb of God, every tribe, every nation, every language, all of those divisions cease. And we who know in part know Christ perfectly and all of those those divisions that we have had over the word, what does the word of God say will forever cease. But I think the admonition here right now for those who would focus on, on denominational visions is what does the word of Christ say? Let us hold one another accountable to the truth, his word and the truth, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is the way, the truth and the life. You mentioned the creed and the way that we confess, you know, I believe in the one holy Christian and apostolic church. And those first two words, I believe, this is an article of faith that the church is one, because we don't always see it, as you said. But by faith, we know that it is true, that there is only one church. And, and in fact, that whole article is by faith, even the, the word holy, right? The church doesn't always look so holy, Pastor Philippeck, and yet we know that it is holy because of Christ. And I think that's that's comes through in the prayer that Jesus offers here. We talked a little bit about that yesterday with the way Jesus speaks about his disciples already in the, the previous text, that they are those who have received his words and they have believed in Jesus. And Jesus prays that way, even though his disciples certainly have not understood everything that he has said up to this point. And they've expressed that misunderstanding at several points, yet he prays in this way. And I think this, this thought of the unity of the church here that it's a similar perspective that Jesus has, that it is 
the the oneness just as he and his father have that one that oneness so he prays for that and by faith we know it's true even if we can't always see it absolutely even there in the upper room there is division judas whom satan That's is right. going to enter into and i think if i may by just way of uh, uh, just a maybe a, a little of analogy here um so I have a, in my town, there's a Catholic church. Believe it or not, we're kind of two of the only churches. There's a small ELCA church as well. But I'm going to use um, the larger uh, church in my in my area uh, beyond uh, just us. So it's a Catholic church, right? And even in, take the picture of communion. Now, they don't commune uh, here at Holy Cross or Emmanuel, nor we there, because there's a division among us. And stepping up to each other's altar would be a little more than lying to God saying, it's cool. We're all agreed. We all agree on everything. It's it's cool. You know, and, and that's in and of itself lying. We need to examine ourselves and to reconcile. But I will say this, their service time is the is kind of the same time as ours. So when the service of communion happens for them in their in their um building, in their altar, and us here at the same time, Christendom is communing at separate altars but receiving um, Christ in their midst. And I use that Catholic example. There's, there's problems, obviously, at divisions between even, even the sacrament and what is to be believed there between Lutherans and Catholics. So, so don't push this too far. But, but there in the midst of this, uh, Christ is among his church, even though be, they be gathered in different places. And if that's a too unpalatable example, because there's just too great a division between um, sometimes the, you know, the Catholics and the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, True, there is. Take it. Take you and I, for example, Pastor Apple. I got an eight thirty mm. service. I don't know about you, um, in your service, nine. but yours is nine. Okay, so we're maybe a little ahead, ahead of you, but maybe Pastor Philibeck preaches a long sermon and Pastor Apple a short sermon. So <laughs> that when we get to nine fifteen, the saints of Holy Cross and Emmanuel, and you serve where now, Pastor Apple? Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you. Um, well, I knew you served Godfrey, Illinois. What's the name of the congregation? Faith. Okay. Faith Lutheran. So the saints of faith Lutheran and the saints of Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Church are communing together. And the no, there's no bounds. And this works really well when we talk about the same doctrine of communion for like you and I, this works well. And it kind of breaks apart a little bit with the Catholic analogy here. But for you and I, the saints of those places may be divided by location, but we are all receiving the same Jesus. Christendom is united, though we be divided by miles. And you, I mean, you can run this through a various way, but hopefully that helps you to think about things a little bit more as of unity aspect. Yeah, yeah. Well, and even even the the saints of God at Faith Lutheran Church that worship at five o'clock in the afternoon on Saturday are also united in that as well. So, I mean, yeah, that's a fantastic example, Pastor Philippeck. We're going to keep looking at this text on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFO. We're talking to Pastor Adam Philippeck about John 17. We will be right back. Please stick around. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe. Become a patron. 
and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, March 29th. We're studying John chapter 17, verses 11 to 19 with the Reverend Dr. Adam Philippeck. He serves at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Churches, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Philippeck, prior to the break, we were talking about the unity of the church that is ours in Christ. And you were mentioning to me over the break that we also have a unity, not just with each other, but also with the heavenly church. How do we hear about that in the worship service? Certainly. So we had the first, we had one of the examples, uh, you're in my congregation, being the, the unity here where we're both in fellowship in our church body, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And then we saw a little bit of how there is division between other church bodies. I use the Catholic Church here versus us. And yet there's also a little bit of unity in that we still cling to, look to Jesus, and yet we still have divisions to work out among us. We still need to wrestle with these things through the Word of God. And I want to broaden our scope from earthly church unity, the church militant, to the church triumphant. So we not only, you know, this is why the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, the church throughout the ages, thought here to connect it to that. In our service, in the proper preface, we say with angels, archangels, and all the company of heaven. And without all the company of heaven comes those who have departed this life and departed this life being kept in the name of the Father. That is, they believed here in time and held to Christ. And so there in eternity, they dwell in the arms of Christ's loving embrace. They are in eternity. And so this idea, we feebly struggle of our hymn, they in glory shine for all the saints. When we step up um, to that altar, Christ, or just even in the church service, Christ is present with us in word and sacrament. And wherever Jesus is, that's what we typically call heaven, where Jesus is, there he brings with him those who are fallen asleep. Now, there is a greater and glorious day when he will bring forever those who have fallen asleep and reunite the soul and the body together, and we shall be with him, uh, in as we talked about in Revelation 7. But even here and now, the church triumphant and the church militant, the church on earth militant and the church triumphant are, are united together because Christ is present in the divine service in word and sacraments. So there, together with angels, archangels, the whole church, is present with Christ, who is the head. There is a unity for that one hour or 45 minutes or an hour and a half, what, however long the service happens to be. Maybe Pastor Philippex preaching too long again. I don't know. Just just a little jest there, a, jo a joke on myself. But, um, but for however long that be, Christ is present. This is where heaven and earth touch for one hour a week, and the angels, archangels, and all the company of heaven, the church is fully united there in the divine service in word and sacrament with her Lord, gathered around her Lord in word and sacrament. Now, as Jesus continues in his prayer, he says in verse 12, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus will return to that thought that he has kept them so far now that he's leaving. He's going to come back to that. But he does mention this one who... He mentions the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. What is Jesus talking about there? Sadly, he's talking about Judas. And this is not the first time that this type of language has been ascribed to Judas. Um, John 6, 
the bread of life discourse, John 6, 70, toward the end of the discourse, he says to his those who remain, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the word of eternal life. We have come to know and believe you are the Holy One of God. Not long after that, he says, one of you is a devil. Talking about Judas, John notes. And in John 13, we have already seen in our time together, as studying with all the various pastors, this, this beautiful gospel of John here on Sharper Iron, that in John 13, 26 and 27, uh, Satan entered Judas already to betray him. And so there is this aspect of, of Satan being aligned with the devil. I mean, Satan being aligned, Judas being aligned with the devil, Satan entering Judas. Sorry for my misspeak there. But yeah, Satan entering, entering Judas and him being one with the devil. And I think this is this, I mean, this bears it out. Um, Judas feels so guilty. We're never taught, we never heard that he, he repents. We're told that he feels guilty. And with the money uh, that he, that he sold Jesus for, that price of a slave. Uh, it, it is bought, that money is used to buy the field and he hangs himself, falls headlong, and his, um, his bowels gush out is how Acts uh, records this. And then in the midst of that, uh, Paul makes this interesting comment that connects to the scripture being fulfilled. Uh, so the son of, of uh, destruction is Judas. That scripture be fulfilled? What, what do you mean? Well, when they're, when they're at the resurrection, when they're waiting to be a cloud from the power of the on high, so Jesus has ascended, He's appeared for 40 days. He's ascended to the Father's right hand. We're in between that ascension and Pentecost. Um, they're in the, the upper room, and they're talking about taking the office. We need one to be an eyewitness, uh, one who is a sent one, one who has seen. And Peter makes this comment, this text does. Luke records that in Acts 20, it is written about Judas who went the way, and, and he t recounts this whole thing, uh, went the way of sort of perdition of, of hell, um, that uh, it is written, let another take his office. And it's talking about this moment. Like Peter quotes Psalm 109 verse 8 to say that that song was foreseeing. It's really about this moment here in time. It is about this office. This is the reality, the office of the preaching ministry, which Christ entrusts to us that we should be sent out for the preaching of repentance and faith that whoever hears these words might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, he may have life in his name. So this John it, it, here is, is referencing this, this whole fact, and, and Acts will make this even more poignant, uh, of Psalm 109, verse 8, that um, Satan is, is entering Judas. Judas is abandoning his apostleship. He's abandoning our Lord. He's being he's betraying our Lord. Uh, he's aligned with the devil. I mean, all of this is coming into focus here when John says not one of them has been lost except Judas, the son of destruction. Mm. Now, Jesus continues then in his prayer. He says, I'm coming to you, speaking to the Father. These things I speak in the world that they, the disciples, would have my joy, Jesus' joy, fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. So Jesus says, I'm, I'm speaking my word in the world. It's going to give joy to the disciples, but that word that Jesus speaks is going to cause the world to hate the disciples. So talk about this hatred that the world has for the disciples. Absolutely. We've seen this 
from the beginning of John's gospel. He came into the world. The world did not know him, right? I mean, this is just it. The world, we by nature, born sinful and unclean, the sinful flesh, the world does not know God. Not one of us is born out of our mother's room saying, oh, God, God, let me tell you about God. Trinity and unity, unity and trinity, neither dividing the substance or person. There is Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not three gods, but yet one God. And by the way, the second person of the of the trinity, Jesus Christ, has two natures, God and man. Yeah. No, not one of us knows God. We are all spiritually dead. We are all sin, all fall short of the glory of God. Like this is this is our default position. And John has ma- made no bones about this. In chapter one, he's talked about this. On in all the way through, you you follow the the chief priests, the Pharisees, and, and the conversations there. We get it into a, a conversation with the Pharisee in John three, Nicodemus, and Nicodemus doesn't understand why, because you can only stand if you are anothen, born from above in the Greek, born of water and the Spirit. The flesh gives birth to flesh, that worldly aspect, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. Um, so John is talking about those who are body and soul, not just like Spirit is disembodied. Um, person or something, but no, spirit is a believer in Christ, one who has been renewed and reconciled to Father by the Spirit through the Son. That's what it means to be born of the Spirit in the waters of baptism in His Word. Uh, But one who is of the flesh is still separated, one who holds on to the passion and the desires of the world, who does not know God, who doesn't believe in God. That's what we mean with the world. So you have this dichotomy throughout, and In fact, this dichotomy is so great that the world, the Pharisees, the scribes, and even those who have witnessed him in in chapter 6, many of them walked away from him because he had too hard a hearing. The world persecutes. John 15, verse 18 through 27, we talked about this. What does the world do to Jesus? It's about persecution. They're going to persecute this this son of righteousness. Well, a a servant is not above his master. Uh, Our Lord, the master, is persecuted. Foxes have holes, birds has nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You know, this is this is talked about time and time again throughout Scripture. To go the way of Jesus, to follow Jesus, is the is the Via Dolorosa. It is the way of the cross, to be hated by the world. This is why this has been building and building until John 16, when we get that worldly aspect again. I've quoted this already, but I quote it here again. I have told you these things, Jesus says in John 16, so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. Trouble, the problem of evil, the pleasures, the cardinal pleasures, the desires of this life, man, they're the norm. But Jesus says, take heart. I have overcome the world. I have overcome this sin. I have overcome this this devil. I have overcome this great enemy, death. I have overcome them, so you have nothing to fear. You have peace in the face of sin, uh, I give you peace. And this is this peace connects to the upper room. He breathes on the disciples. Peace be with you if you forgive the sins of any. They are forgiven. I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. They have that peace there in the in the midst of Jesus in that upper room, wherever Christ is, they have that peace. He will bestow that peace upon them again in the resurrection, even bestowing that peace upon Peter, who had denied Jesus. He will give them that peace and reestate reinstate him as one of the uh, apostles. But but this in the world, we are to be in the world, meaning we exist here in time, uh, be or we are not of the world. We are not of our flesh. The, the, our master is not Satan. Our ruler and Lord is not death, and sin has no power over us. 
Because the death Christ died, he died once to all. And the life he lives, he lives to God. So now we who have been baptized into Christ and, can, and have heard his word, we consider ourselves, we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. For we were buried with that him in baptism in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too not, might walk in the newness of life. So we are in the world. We love and serve our neighbor. We are merciful. We are forgiving. That is what God has given us to be as he was. So we also forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. But we are not of the world. We are of Christ. Mm. Well, and, and we are in the world and yet not of the world. But especially in that first part, we are in the world precisely because Jesus does not take us out of the world. He even prays that in verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. So he keeps us in the world, though we are not of it. And then he prays as we are in the world, but not of it, that the Father would keep us from the evil one. We come back to that that petition, or it's I suppose it's related to the petition we talked about at the beginning, that he would keep us in his name. Now it's keep us from the evil one. Those mm-hmm. things are related. But he he leaves us in the world, I suppose there's an, an element of comfort in that to know that even as we endure the sufferings of this life and, and the evil one attacks us, we are in the world, not by accident, but this is a part of what the Lord has given us. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. We, uh, When we're Christians, it's not like the word of God comes to us so that we may be saved and then poof, now that we're saved, we're gone, we get to be with him in heaven. No, there is a waiting and there is a longing. But in that waiting and longing to be with him, we are in this world. The disciples are in this world and the disciples are sent and they are in this world so that others might believe through them what they have witnessed. We are in this world to love and to serve our neighbors so that they too might see Christ proclaimed in our day-to-day vocations, right? As we love and serve our neighbor in this world. And that might be a light to those who walk in darkness that I can say to my neighbor, oh, well, I do this, I, I say these things to you because I am of Christ. This is my peace. This is what I have. Come with me. Hear of this prince of peace, this son of righteousness, this son of God. Come with me and, and uh, get to see heaven on earth here. Come to see this peace in the divine service on Sunday mornings. But this regular in in and through us, Christ working as he, as he does through his disciples, we get to actually... Uh, Bring Christ to our neighbor through that that word, that conversation of Scripture, when when we forgive each other our sins, all of this aspect, Christ is at work in and through us. So in our day-to-day vocations, Christ still dwells with us here in time. In word and sacrament, Christ still dwells with us. So whether that we are here in the body or there with him waiting for the resurrection, or finally in the glorified resurrected body, wherever we are, Christ is with us. Our life is always in Christ. Our life is in Christ. As Jesus continues in the prayer, he reiterates in verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. That is why we are not of the world, is because we belong to Christ, who is not of the world. And then in verse 17, Jesus says words that I I know well. I think they are in, I couldn't tell you which service, but it's in one of the liturgies in the Lutheran service book. It's a response between the pastor and the people, I believe sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Take us into those words of Jesus, Pastor Philippeck. Absolutely. So we have already heard Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus is the truth. All that he is, all that he says. And what he says has been written 
and preached for our learning. These things are written, St. John will end his gospel nearly saying, um, nearly because there's chapter 21, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in, this, in his name. So we are going to be guarded. We are going to be sanctified, set apart, and made holy. How? By the written and preached word of God that all testify to him who is the truth. This word is truth. This is how we are guarded, and this is how we are kept against the evil one. Think back to what we talked about. Has God forgotten about me? Has, we, has he forsaken me? What does the psalmist appeal to? Then I will remember the wondrous works of his right hand, how he led the people of Israel. And what are we doing? We're going back to God's events recorded for us in Holy Scripture here that are written that we may see that Christ is for us and not against us, constantly driving back driving us back to his word, that we might have our sins forgiven, that we might be strengthened in our battle against that. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Get behind me, Satan, for it stands written, right? I mean, this is the aspect of it, this, this breastplate of righteousness, this sword of the spirit, all of these things, this, this word of, of truth sanctifies us. It makes us holy. It gives us Jesus. It guards us and keeps us even to the point where when we feel like we are at our worst, Lord, where are you? Where are you? Have you forgotten us? Have you forsaken us? We might, like the psalmist, appeal to what God has done. Oh, he's loved us unto death. Or Isaiah, we might focus more specifically on the, can the mother forget as a nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. I will never forget about you. I have engraved you on the palms of our hands of my hands, that we might focus on Christ who has entered into our time, our place, who has taken on a human body, who has loved us unto death, and know that by this we may be certain that God is not against us, but for us. How do we know? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not give us the things that Christ won for us and has promised us? So this sanctification in truth, this being made holy, this being consecrated and set apart um, happens by the Spirit through that word. Now, as Jesus continues then in verse 18, he, he brings up the matter of sending. So he says, as you, the Father, sent me, the Son, into the world, so I have sent them, the disciples, into the world. Talk about the sending that Jesus does for his disciples. Absolutely. This connects intimately to what we just talked about moments ago with the resurrection and the breathing of his disciple on his disciples. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. But then in verse 17, he did not send his Son into the world Notice, to condemn the world, but in order that it might be saved. That's the first sending, the sending on the cross, right? Now, there will be coming a time where, yes, he will condemn the world at his second coming. Those who um, have who believe in him uh, to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil who do not believe in him to the resurrection of judgment, John 5. But the fact of the matter is, he has sent his son into this world to save the world. Well, having done that, he is going back to the Father. This is what is this whole passion, death resurrection, ascension. This is what he foresees, and this is what he speaks of in this entire chapter. Knowing that, risen from the dead, he's going to breathe on his disciples in the upper room and say, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness, they are withheld. That's the words, but what I have left out is those, is those sending words. In John chapter 20, 19 through 23, he says, as the Father has sent me, even so I now send you. 
receive the Holy Spirit if you forgive the sins of any. So the disciples are going to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, beginning in Jerusalem, Samaria, to the northern kingdom that is kind of mixed in there, that is married and yet once Israel, but not Israel anymore, and then to the ends of the world, to the Gentiles, so to the Jew, to the Gentile, and so that all people might believe in him and have life in his name. So this aspect of sending has to do with the mission that he's going to send them on, to the preaching of the word of God to the people that they might believe through these apostolic witnesses. The last verse of our text today is verse 19, where Jesus says, For their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. When Jesus says, I consecrate myself, he's using the same word in Greek that he's been using in verse 17, and again, the the sanctified in truth. So what does that mean, that Jesus consecrates himself or sanctifies himself, and how does that relate to the disciples being sanctified in the truth? He has set himself apart. The Father has anointed him to, by the Spirit to be the one who is set apart, consecrated, to give his life unto death, to be high and lifted up, and when he is high and lifted up, to draw all people unto himself. And so now, knowing this, he goes forth as the one sent from the Father to be high and lifted up. As Moses lifted up in the, the serpent in the wilderness, so now must the Son of Son of Man be lifted up. And by that being lifted up, by that being set apart to be the Savior of the world, the suffering servant, the one who enters into our suffering, that we might be free inevitably from sin, suffering, pain, and death, we are sanctified. We are set apart, made sons of God through faith, kept and guarded by Christ through his holy word, that spirit of God pointing us always only to Jesus in his word, that we might not die, but that we might have eternal life in him. So that being sanctified is, is being connected to the one who was set apart, being high and lifted up, that he might draw us and all the people of the world to himself, that everyone who believes in him, everyone who looks to him, everyone who confesses him to be the Lord, the Christ, might have eternal life and God might raise them up on the last day. So they stand sanctified for they have Christ. They have his word that he will be handed over to the chief priest, die and on the third day rise again. They are set apart and kept and guarded from the evil one. They are kept in the name through that word, through that word of God that proclaims the truth, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in their midst. It's remarkable to me how this conversation now has come full circle. We started off by talking about the death of Jesus and the suffering of Jesus being that place of refuge in the problem in the midst of the problem of evil. And here at the end, Jesus speaks about consecrating himself, setting himself apart to be lifted up high on the cross, to go into death for our sakes, to sanctify us in his truth. Over and over again in John's gospel, in this prayer, Jesus comes back to that central truth that he is the crucified one, the one glorified in his death for the salvation of sinners. Pastor Philippek, we got about three minutes here on the morning. Help us to wrap things up today. Give us the comfort that's ours in this prayer of Jesus. Absolutely. You can be confident, you can be certain that though the devil rages, though he seek to tempt you, though he seek to accuse you, how could you? I thought you were a child of God. Boy, where is God in the midst of evil? Doesn't he love you? Doesn't he, doesn't he care for you? Is he even real? You can be certain that your God not only exists, but he is for you and not against you. And you know this because this Jesus was high and lifted up upon the cross 
for you. He entered into your suffering to bear in his flesh our sins and be our savior. He has forever engraved your name in the palms of his hands, and he enters into that suffering with you. He sustains you. He keeps you by his holy word and sacrament preached in your ears and given in your mouth, splashed on you in the waters of holy baptism. He keeps you and guards you from the evil one and all that you face, that despair that you too might think as Isaiah and the saints of old. Oh, that's, that's no, God hasn't forgotten me. He can't forsake me. Can a mother forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of a woman? No, that's ridiculous. Even these may forget, but God has engraved me forever in his wounds, on the palms of his hands. There my Lord is written in the wound, my name is written in the wounds of my Savior. And perhaps the last thought of the day, since you have been um, talking a lot about refuge, uh, Pastor Apple, I think that's a good, a good word for this. We may take refuge in him. And what a season it is to take refuge in him. Lent, right? Jesus, refuge of the weary, blessed Redeemer whom we love. Yeah, he is our refuge, our strength, a very present help, even in our time of need. Reverend Dr. Adam Philippek is pastor at Holy Cross and Emmanuel Lutheran Churches, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. He's been helping us today to study John chapter 17, verses 11 to 19. Pastor Philippek, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the gospel according to St. John, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.